This is Mike Montero. I'm Erica Hall. This is Larissa Berger. We're broadcasting from Mule Design Studio in beautiful North Beach, San Francisco. This is Voice of Design. Welcome to another episode of Voice of Design. I'm Erica Hall. This is Mike Montero. This is Larissa Berger. And we're coming to you from our secret headquarters in North Beach, so I guess it's not so secret anymore, in beautiful San Francisco, California. Sort of a bunker, so secret Sort of a bunker. Yeah. Yeah. We dare (laughs) you to find us, and we're very excited today to have uh, joining us Amy Jo Kim, who Amy is, Jo Kim is Amy, here. Amy really? Jo Kim is here. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's so great. We're so happy to be talking to her because she is a game designer of much repute, the CEO of Shufflebrain, which is a game design consultancy, uh, doing some really fantastic work there, as well as the creator of Game Thinking, which is something we'll be talking to her about today. Hi, and welcome, Amy Jo Kim. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm a huge fan of your work. Oh, thank you. We don't actually force people who are on the show to say that, but I'm- It's nice to hear. It's very nice. It's always nice to hear. Yeah. Oh, I've been a huge fan of your work for years. So uh, I'm thrilled to be here and figure I'll learn a bunch just by talking to you like I always do. Well, well, fantastic. So we're going to start out because uh, we have a a theme for our very first season of Voice of Design, and that's uh, talking about what the job of a designer is. And we'd love to hear your take on that. What do you think is the job of a designer? That's such a good question. So I think in practice, there's many, many forms of design, as you know and I know. But at the highest level, I'll start with a story about how I figured out the difference between an artist and a designer. So back when uh, I actually got into this field, originally I was a scientist and a programmer. I got in through software engineering. And when I started being able to put products together and work on the user interface of design, of course, one kind of design is user interface design. Mm -hmm. I started working with a lot of really creative people on a number of different projects. And I had a huge light bulb moment about artists versus designers uh, because on many of the projects, we would get into arguments. And some of the people on the projects would say, you know, I believe in this so strongly. This is my vision. I want you to understand my vision. I want to bring my vision into the world. Oh, God, that's exhausting. And then other people on the projects who are more functionally oriented and more oriented toward solving customer problems like myself, because I had actually come out of software engineering where my job was to solve customer problems. So people like that, like myself would argue, hey, you know, we're not here to express our vision. We're here to understand the customer's point of view and what the customer wants and to make things as simple as possible for the customer And in fact, to make, so we would have these arguments about things like um, navigation. Should the navigation be very branded and expressive with like cute words that were really expressive of the brand and of the vision? Or should the navigation be transparent and functional so you didn't even notice it and just found your way to where you needed to go? We would get in all these arguments and then it crystallized in my mind, oh, 
an artist is all about the internal feedback loop of the of is this matching my vision whereas a designer is about a much more external feedback loop is this solving my customer's problem you know at some fundamental level to me a designer is somebody who looks at the world as very connected with the people they're designing for, how those people move through the world, how they experience something over time, and what their experience is all about. And they can bring vision to it because most good design is a mix of vision and iterative, you know, testing and functionality. But they're fundamentally about the experience when a person meets some sort of object or experience, what happens there. They're not fundamentally about, I must express my vision. Yeah, that's that very, checks out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very well said. I, I feel yeah. like often our position is that we're the advocate for the user. And so at our conversations with organizations when we're designing work, users don't have a seat at that table. So it's our role to be their advocate and to um, really make the case that would make that experience as good as it could be. So one of the one of the things that we tell people when they hire us is that while you may be signing the checks, we don't work for you. We work for the people that you're trying to serve. We are there to make sure that they're represented. We're there to make sure that they're getting what they need. And uh, maybe it's surprising or not surprising how often people get a little uh, worked out of shape about statements like that. Yeah, a little bit like, oh, but I hired you to serve me and my needs what where's the where's the customer is always right kind of aspect to that like where's the service in client services because they think oh i've hired you to perform a service for me the client oh i'm not sure where they got that definition because we never (laughs) gave it to them you know that really gets into what's the job of the designer it gets right into the question that you raised what is that job? And from my point of view, there are many different jobs. Like in my own career, I've been a UX designer. I've been a product designer. I've been a creative director. I've been a game designer. I've been a system designer. I've played all those roles and they're all in a team. So I think part of the role of the designer is to be an advocate for the user. What about the difference between a UX designer and a user researcher? I do both of those in my work. I work with teams to do both of those. Sometimes they're different roles in a larger team. You know, so I think that there's many different roles for designers. In my world, it's always collaborative and that, you know, somebody might be playing multiple roles on a small team, visual designer, UX designer. You know, sometimes somebody who's a product manager is actually playing the role of product designer, really deciding on like the core feature set. And, you know, the strategy is a core part of it. The business cases are a core part of design. All of that's part of design. So you might have one person considering all of it. You might have a team like yours coming in and raising all those issues and addressing all those issues with an internal team. In my own work, I I coach teams. You know, that's the core of my work. I I train individuals and then I work with and coach teams. And there's usually multiple designers on a team where are working with them. And so we break up the work and we figure it out. But by and large, I think the designer's role is to make sure that what we're building is the right thing to build on some fundamental level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a great way of putting it. And I, it's so, and we talked a little bit about this in our last episode with Koi, 
about how hung up some designers get, not on the work that they're doing or what they're trying to accomplish, but there's there can be a real hang up about what is my title. Oh God, I and hate those, that crap. Yeah, that's that, that's like a, a stupid fight. But I'm I'm so interested because you you talked about so many of the things you've done in your career, and uh, I think we've talked about this a little bit before that. You know, we we've stayed independent and super outspoken and, and you stayed really independent and, and outspoken. And so many designers I know who have really uh, a lot of experience and a really strong voice have gone from that agency side or being an independent person to to working in-house. And I I'm, I'm, would love to hear from you a little bit about uh, why you stayed I- independent. When so many, so many others have not, <laughs> which That's isn't a bad true. thing. I'll say that it's not a bad thing to go in house. No, it's not. And I think part of it is figuring out which problems you can stand, you know, <laughs> and I think some of it is also understanding your gifts. So, you know, Laura Klein, of course, yeah, you yeah. know, dear, she's a dear friend and colleague of both of ours. And Laura's independent for a long time and she recently went in house. So she and I were talking about exactly this issue. And I think there's a great answer in that about why I've stayed independent. Now, I will say I've had jobs before. I've had, I was in-house at Indiegogo for a while. I was in-house at Paramount, you know, the media conglomerate. I've definitely Mm -hmm. had in-house jobs, but I've been independent and I really like it. And Laura said to me, you know, you really enjoy teaching and coaching and really expressing ideas in a way that empower teams. And she said, I admire that you're doing that now and you're building a scalable business, but I just, I'm not interested. It's not my gift. I like that hands-on work, you know, with one team. And so I think part of it for me is that I really enjoy the leverage of being able to combine hands-on one-to-one work as you would do in-house with teaching and coaching entrepreneurs worldwide. When I've worked in-house, I've enjoyed it very much, but it also is very limiting. And what I find is that I'm honestly a learning junkie and (laughs) I stay happy and fulfilled and off depression meds by (laughs) learning all the, well, exercise one, but also by always learning new things. And so being able to have a very international audience, my business last year was 65% international outside of the U.S. And so I've really grown that over the last few years. And I have like, I have one client now who would love me to go in-house and I love that client, but I don't want to go in-house because I'm addicted to learning what I learn by growing and scaling my business, particularly internationally. I feel like it keeps me on the cutting edge of what I'm doing. And I feel like it is playing into my unique gifts that I'm able to realize and, you know, for the world. And who knows, someday I may want to go in-house. But for me now, that's been worth the struggle. And I definitely had some really struggle years and I may have some more in the future. But at this point, we're really harvesting a lot of what we've planted over the last few years. And, you know, we're hiring other people rather than me going in-house. We're growing our business. So I think it's the it's probably the learning junkie part and then really wanting to 
being very passionate about reaching people with the materials I have and not wanting to shrink that down to a very narrow group because of the kinds of results that I've seen teams get with our materials. I'm, I'm addicted to training people, coaching people, spreading the word. And most of all, I'm addicted to seeing the results they get. Yeah, it, it is really, really fun. I've, I've found to go into different organizational corporate environments and see how people work, but then be able to walk away. And and go back. And, you know, it, it's funny. We've done business uh, tourism, business tourism. It <laughs> yeah. really is. You go in, you learn about how their operation works and then you're like, OK, great. And you and you can really help them coming in from the outside. And sometimes just the fact that you're from the outside, you know, you've probably noticed people listen to you just because you're from the outside. And it does it does give you a lot more leverage. Yeah. And I think there's some people who are very comfortable in that role and others who aren't. Yeah. Yeah, we've we've really seen that because, you know, we've had to hire a lot of people over the years and and some people are just not uh, client services people. Some people are like, wow, that is terrifying that you have to go in and advocate for your ideas every single time. And I think that that's just keeps me sharp. Right. If if I can't win an argument, if I can't convince somebody of something, well, you know, that's that's on me. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want to be in an environment where I'm not challenged and learning things. Yes, I absolutely share that with you. The other thing I've done that's evolved my business into our business, because I run it with my partner and we have a team, but the thing that's really evolved our business has been to move from a client services model, which we certainly have a form of, more to package services, where we have a variety of services that are packaged. We put clients through hoops for our higher end services to make sure it's a good match. And we actually, I'll be really honest, we actively try and scare people away. And I've learned to do that because I hate to fail. We've coached hundreds of teams at this point, and there's two or three where we just failed, meaning they stopped doing the program and were unhappy. And every single time it's been for the same reason. So pattern matching, it's been because it was someone who had come from management consulting, had never shipped a product, <laughs> was around a lot of people shipping products, and was not really able to be humble enough to walk through the fire of getting brutal feedback on your idea and then making it better, which is what we do with clients. And so most of our clients are very excited about that. And we walk through the fire with them and help them learn. Sometimes somebody, when they get their feet to the embers of that brutal feedback on their beloved idea, can't go there. And so I, I really try and scare away those people. I also try and scare away people whose business model depends on a certain answer to the questions they have. Mm -hmm. And, and like, if they don't get the answer, their funder's going to go away. Like they're not, they're not going to have a happy time getting brutally honest feedback on their idea. That's not what they want. So I've actually learned how to really say, this is not for everyone. Here's this package. If you're like this, this, and this, this is going to rock your world, you know, and really try and have a filtering process so that by the time I start working with someone, they've bought in and it narrows things, but it also opens up things, right? Mm, yeah. 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 And I'd say that's probably something that we really also have in common that, um, that yes, we would definitely <laughs> say that we try to scare away people who aren't a good match for working with us. Like for that reason, because sometimes people, like we were saying about client services, they just want somebody to 
sketch their vision or something. Yeah. I, I remember one of the first things that Mike said to all of us within the first six months that I started was that, you know, any project can succeed and it's because the agency helped them succeed or a project can fail, but the agency wasn't as at fault for that failure or the project can fail and the agency was at fault for that failure. And he said uh, 90% of agencies seem to aim for the second option. Like maybe the project doesn't succeed, but at least it's not your fault. And that we only want to aim for a project succeeding and being there to see it through. Yeah, I, I, it sounds smarter when you say it. By the way. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I remember. It was, I was like, whoa, yeah, so true. <laughs> yeah, I think most of what I've seen both with agencies and with people internally is that they aim for well, if it doesn't succeed, my ass is covered. Right, right, right. It seems like an incredibly unethical way to work. And Amy, I love the way that you put it, like walking through the fire together. That's definitely a accurate description of certain phases of the projects that we've done. Yeah. <laughs> so every successful project I've ever worked on had these dark nights of the soul where we're walking through the fire. I have never seen success happen without that. Have you? No, no. In fact, one of the things that we tell clients when we start working with them is at some point during this project, you will want to kill us and we will want to kill you. And that's absolutely normal and good and be aware of it. And then we get to that moment and a, a few of them have actually like their faces light up and they're like, oh, this is that moment you told me about. <laughs> Yes, this is that moment. Oh, okay, so I should just get over it. Yes. Yeah, because what that means is that everybody involved really cares, right? Yeah. If people yeah. don't care and they're just like, we've worked on projects where people are just ticking a box and they're like, oh, we need some of that design stuff. So we've hired some designers to do some design, but, you know, it's just, I've got budget to burn and I don't care about the outcome. They're not going to fight. They're yeah, not going to care. I only worry about projects when when clients start agreeing with everything you do. Yeah, because then you know it's coming. You know that yeah. they secretly don't agree at all. Like, like at some point, like they're just agreeing with everything. They're not paying attention. They don't care. There's lots of reasons. But at some point, they're going to wake up. <laughs> and that's when you're screwed. You know, that's part of why I shifted to a coaching plus doing model versus client services. Because it gets them involved up front. And if they're not, you're right. Like sometimes even within that model, some are less engaged than others, but it's doing it for them versus empowering them with tools and then doing it with them. And not every client wants to do that, but they need to have a sense of ownership or they don't, it doesn't stick, right? You want what you do to be transformative, right? not a Band-Aid. Right. Yeah. No, that, that, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. And that's why, you know, a lot of times, you know, projects or the work solving the problem takes a certain amount of time. You know, we've, you've probably experienced this too. People come and they're like, okay, we've got to get this thing to market really fast. We have to solve the problem really fast. But if people are really going to change the way that they think, that takes some time. It's not, you know, it's not going to be like, oh, we have a design sprint. We solved our problem and our organization is going to be radically different in a week. That's a, that's just not going to happen. Especially in design, particularly, it feels like people want to rush to change the work in, instead of changing their own point of view to the work. 
but sometimes that's actually what's necessary. So a lot of our work focuses on external communication, and that can be really difficult to convince a client that has perhaps like a lot of documentation or processes or overhead for how they communicate internally, because that ends up taking up the bandwidth of the project. And we need to refocus them to like, okay, you need to speak to someone who doesn't know who you are, who's going to spend very little time getting to know who you are and reorienting them is difficult. Yeah. Getting people to really genuinely care about the outside world and not just say that they care, you know, when they might be dealing with internal voices that are in their ears yelling mm-hmm. at them. Every day. Every day. <laughs> the voices, the voices in my company. Yeah, some of us already bring the voices in their head without anybody else around. Yeah. Yeah. We've got plenty. We have so many, all, all the voices, all the voices. And so, so I want to, so I want to uh, talk to you. So you just released your book, game thinking based on the the game thinking practice that you've developed over the years. And I'd, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that because, you know, everybody has been talking about oh, design thinking, design thinking. So like... Not a thing. Not... <laughs> yeah, and they used to be talking about gamification. Yeah. And that was kind of... That other buzzword. Yeah, I think that exactly. was like right before design thinking. Totally. So now... It was like jazz hand, jazz. gamification. <laughs> Totally. Uh, Yeah. So, so tell us, tell us about game thinking. Absolutely. Well, clearly game thinking is design thinking meets gamification, right? (laughs) (laughs) Based on on that intro. Yeah. Yeah. So game thinking actually is a a synthesis of game design, systems thinking, design thinking, and lean agile UX, which is, I think, a place that a lot of us feel attracted to. You know, there's a lot Lean Agile has a lot of great stuff in it, but like every one of these practices, including design sprints, when it gets codified and then just used as a thing that solves problems rather than integrated in the right way into what someone's doing, it goes wrong. And it's it gives you misleading results or you don't get the results you were hoping for. So, I mean, design sprints, when they're well used, can be fantastic. Oh, right? yeah. In the in but, the right but, context. Right. But then when they're used to solve a problem that they can't solve, where they could be a useful step in the direction, they, you know, it's like, okay, we solved the problem. And then actually you haven't. And you can be left with something that is very misleading. I can tell you a very specific story about that if you'd like. Oh, yeah. We love stories. So, yeah. And the thing is, all of these tools are this way, including every tool in the Game Thinking Handbook. But this is part of telling you where game thinking came from. Game thinking came from seeing that of the dozens and dozens and dozens of projects I worked on in my career, seven or eight of them were massive global worldwide hits. What did they all have in common? Some of them were games and some of them were services and marketplaces. And those are what I work on multiplayer systems. And so game thinking was really what was different about those. And there were some really fundamental things, a lot of which has tons of overlap with what Mule does so well, which is, you know, a certain kind of early research, a certain kind of iterative testing and prototyping, et cetera. Game design does a lot of that. But the missing ingredient that came from games in game thinking is really how you build engagement from the inside out by starting your thinking and your prototyping 
and you're testing with your day 21 experience, your core product experience, what we call the core learning loop, rather than starting it with your fancy onboarding and, mm, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah, game designers call that finding the fun, but it turns out that if you're trying to not build a leaky bucket and you're trying to build long-term engagement from the ground up, everything changes if you start your process by saying, what's happening on day 21? Yeah, that's awesome. Hmm. So, yeah. So, and then I wanted to bring it back though to the question you asked, which is what is game thinking and, you know, why the book? So I have all this experience in the twin worlds of game design and product service marketplace design, which coalesces in multiplayer systems, right? So game thinking is really about how you you can build multiplayer systems that drive long-term engagement. Like, so it's not, and it turns out that anybody, here's a good clue. Anybody that starts off by talking about mechanics has just out in themselves as a noob. <laughs> totally. yeah. As a what? A noob, short for uh, noob. Oh, oh, noob. Oh, got it, got noob. it, got it. That's a good word. Yeah, because that's that's what everybody was talking about with gamification. They would just bolt on, quote unquote, game mechanics onto any sort of crappy non-solution to a non-problem. Yeah, and they, and they would totally fetishize the, the beginning, that first experience, just like you named, as opposed to, okay, you had a great onboarding experience, but then you're done. It's boring. Slap a leaderboard on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you badges. Right. And so the mechanics, like, it turns out that the game designers who build hits versus... The other thing is there's plenty of crappy game designers out there who aren't very experienced and will start with mechanics like because it's visible and easy, but it's the tip of the iceberg that's if you start with it and you just slap it on, we all know where that goes, which is it can give you a short-term bump in some of your metrics, but it doesn't drive long-term engagement. It ends up being cluttering and confusing, but people go, wait a minute, but all these games have all these mechanics. And the reason is, which is what game thinking is, it pulls back the curtain on the process behind what led to those long-term hits. And the process behind them doesn't start with mechanics. It never starts with mechanics. In fact, when I was a young game designer, I was like, I really want to build the mechanics because you know what? It's really fun. And the people I was working for were like, slap me down. And they're like, have patience. We're going to spend seven frigging months tuning this core loop for this one song. That was rock band. And I'm like, why, 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 why? And they said, because if we don't, and if that doesn't feel right, nothing else matters. And we're studio's not going to green light the next phase. That was a, a choice point. And they were smart enough to really tune that core loop. And that's why rock band was a worldwide hit with many, many franchises you know, legacy things. Mm-hmm. And so at the beginning of it, I was that person going, let's gamify it. So I like, I've been there as a game designer and the people I worked for were like, tune this core loop first with these right, these early adopters, then we'll talk. And that's what I'm bringing really to the world with game thinking. And this, the thing is the same thing happened on eBay. The same thing happened on the Sims. The same thing happened on Netflix. The same thing happened on multiple projects I worked with with Disney that were a success. It's like, and it's so easy to get misled 
by the gamification and the design sprint. So here's my story about how design sprints are misleading. So I worked with this brilliant young founder. He had been a product marketer at Google and Facebook, had no problem raising money. And he comes to me and he's got two beautiful visuals for his idea. Like they're visual mock-ups. They're super detailed. They don't have anything to do with like a flow or an experience over time. They're just these mock-ups of his idea. And he raised $2 million. And he comes to me and he's like, well, the UI is almost done. And I said, <laughs> um, no, it's not. And he goes, well, we actually, we ran a design sprint and we came up with this and we tested it just like, you know, and people loved it. So like the UI is almost done and we just need to do a few things and ship. And I said, you know, to myself, you're out of your mind. But, you know, to him, I said, well, let's dig in a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. And I ended up working with him. But he was so, he was sort of damaged by believing that he was almost there. And it, he ended up getting somewhere we're on good terms, but it focused him in the wrong direction to have that belief. And it ultimately made it impossible for me to get the results I usually get with teams and clients. Wow. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear you say that about an entrepreneur, because we really found that with sometimes designers we've worked with who felt kind of like they were done learning or they'd found the right answer. And once somebody reaches that point, they, they're they so close-minded. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's the that's the problem. So so going back to, and I think that's the the job of also, you know, designers and entrepreneurs. And that's something that I think the good ones really share is being excited about learning, not being excited about finding that right answer and then defending it at all costs. Yeah. And, and people really abuse analytics that way, like to what you were saying earlier, Amy Jo, about analytics and how people just want to see those shoot up at the beginning, but they're not really looking for the long game. How do you go about shifting that conversation or showing that other more meaningful goal to your clients? That is such a good question. I had this recently. I had this situation recently with a client. That's a good story of how it evolves. So I started working with a client and they had had several failed experiments and were really concerned about runway. Brilliant startup team. And they knew, so we talked about that their product really lacked. I mean, their product really was a classic example of interesting onboarding and then not any interesting core loop. Like there wasn't a reason to come back really on day 21. Hmm. So we talked about that and they bought into the idea that they wanted to create an idea for a coherent and compelling customer journey. So we all know, you know, there's a term customer journey and journey mapping. And a lot of times that's used for a sales journey. Totally. And the kind of customer journey that game thinking opens up is the journey of learning and mastery. And it's really the learning architecture of your product. And what the secret of what actually makes games interesting is the mechanics. It's getting better at something you care about. That's the core of what really makes a game interesting and really makes any social product interesting is you get better at it. So finding a way to, to restructure how you think about your product is asking yourself, okay, what is my customer getting better at? What are the stages of this? How is How does the onboarding lead into that regular learning loop? And where's the feedback in that learning loop? And then what's the, what's the thing three months in, six months in that 
they look back and like, yeah, I got, I, you know, I got better at that. And then how do you leverage that energy and feed it back into the system? So all of that is part of how you create a customer journey toward mastery. Got it. And so what I did with the client is I first, we bought into that concept, like they bought into the concept and then we created multiple ideas for what that could be based on what they already knew from their analytics, from their, from their research. And then we ran some new research to get data, but to get a small set of data from a carefully selected group of early adopters. And the thing that we tested was something that's part of game thinking that actually came out of my experiences working for Paramount in Hollywood, which is concept scenarios. And so concept scenarios are a mix of storyboards and design over time. And concept scenarios, they look like storyboards, but they emphasize how people are using your product, not the interface of the product, but they always take place over time. So it's like, okay, what's happening on day 30? Like that you, you create and okay, what's happening on, you know, a year in what's happening six months in. And this came from my experiences working on like MMOs, like those teams had their version of a year in the life instead of a day in the life. And I was like, oh, oh, and that, and then, yeah, yeah. that's a different right? scale. When you do that, yeah. you are designing the underlying systems, right? That lead you into that and keep it interesting. And it's, again, it's not about the mechanics. It's really about layering the system. Totally. And so, you know, the, the basics of that are in my new book, Game Thinking, is unlocking that for anyone that's designing a social product. The big multiplayer systems that we're dealing with right now are our social media platforms. And it kind of seems like something has really gone off the rails and they're really enabling and benefiting from some some pretty antisocial behavior. And so I know you've got an academic background in, in neuroscience and just uh, this is going to be a hard question with a really that we'll need a really short answer to given our time. But um, but what would you say to the people running like the social media platforms? Like, do you have advice for them about how to make the game of interacting on the systems more fun for everyone? Yeah, make day twenty one <laughs> not toxic. Yeah. So I have several answers to that. One is as a neuroscientist. As a, and I, that's what my PhD is in, behavioral neuroscience. Uh, neurochemical interactions are far, far more complex than what's portrayed in popular media. When people say, <laughs> so when people say dopamine hit, to me, that's like gamification. That's like, no. okay, you're, at, you're outing yourself as a noob. <laughs> but I feel that it also, I understand it, you know? And so as a neuroscientist, I follow things like I understand that prolonged meditation practice changes the structure of your brain. There's a lot of evidence for that. Prolonged gratitude rituals change your mood like exercise does. There's certain things that there's a lot of longitudinal studies enough that it's been replicated. And so as a scientist, then I believe it. In terms of advice to these companies, I feel much more that my advice comes as a system designer. And as someone who's designed complex systems that interact with other complex systems in many different products, incentive systems are really hard to balance. And incentive systems have unintended consequences 
in the world. So I also say that to every ICO um, token designer. Totally, <laughs> yeah. totally. You know, that stuff just, again, looks as a game designer. I look at that and I'm like, good luck. Yeah, it's huh. terrifying. a year when you tell me how that worked out for you. Totally. So I mean, it's just incentive systems within a complex environment are impossible to predict is, I guess, my inside as a system designer. And I've spent so much time chasing them down and plugging the hole and, oh my God, what are we going to do? And, oh my God, we plugged this hole and then this other thing popped up and like, right? Just as a system designer, that's going to be true in environments where you've got interacting complex systems that are changing and that have humans in them. So I'm not sure what my advice is. I don't feel educated enough to jump into the fray, which again is probably a very female thing too, because <laughs> I know quite a bit, but yeah, I, it's never stopped a guy. Here's <laughs> the thing. I'm really excited about the work I'm doing and I have way more incoming stuff than I can take. So I'm very, very conscious and careful about where I spend my time. And about eight months ago, I got into a Facebook argument about tokens with somebody I love, worked with, and have known for 10 years on Facebook. And I quit after that day. I was just like, I'm not having any more conversations on this platform yeah. about wow. anything that's like this. I love that guy. And that was twisted. And it's what you were saying, Erica. It's like something's off, like that that happened. Yeah. And part of it's crypto, but part of it's Facebook, because that never happens to me on Twitter. But I'm smart on Twitter. I just like, I wouldn't go there. But there's also something about Facebook that engenders that. But it's the same thing that makes Facebook compelling and interesting. It's a two-sided coin. Oh, yeah. So I think systems are hard. You know, I think there's rise and fall. Like my use of Facebook is dramatically lower than it was eight months ago for this reason. I'm now running my own private networks, not on Facebook, but on Mighty Networks because they integrate with courses. And that's, and that's what really I'm building is a learning community. Mm -hmm. So things are evolving. I feel like I can speak authentically from my own experience. And my own experience is that it's really, really hard to balance incentive systems and it's worth understanding, but it's a, it's a matter of ongoing balance. Yeah. So I think maybe that's the, the biggest takeaway. And it sounds like this, is, like we might want to talk more about this topic. It's so fascinating is that the people who started these systems underestimated their complexity. And I think that might be the... And overestimated their own mastery of balancing those systems. They're not as self-aware as... <laughs> yeah. I'm working with a client right now who's a really experienced business coach who specializes in wholesalers in the financial services industry. And she's taking her business online. And I'm helping her like package it into a product. Wow. And it's so hard for her. She is walking through the fire right wow. this minute, this client. But you know what? She's doing it. And it's a beautiful thing wow. when clients walk through the fire with you and get out the other side. Oh, totally. yeah. yeah. We're in the midst of that, too. Yeah. Yeah. We're on some coals right now. And at the other side is progress, real progress. Yes. I'd say that's one of the most, that could be one of the most satisfying feelings is when you have that exchange of perspectives, let's call it, that's yeah. very charged. And then you find that through those discussions, the ideas just get stronger. And I think that's a part of collaboration 
that uh, that people don't talk about enough because nobody's taught to have functional disagreements, right? Everybody learns how to have really personal arguments and really toxic personal disagreements. But very it, it takes a lot of like work experience and terrible trial and error to see like, oh, that's a really productive disagreement because we have a shared goal. And you have to have that clear shared goal to really fight about something in a way that's like, oh, it's really meaningful. We're really passionate about this, but we're not personally attacking each other. Yeah. And and to your earlier point, I mean, yeah, it really is transformative. And for the best fights, I find like it's not just the client that's changed. It's I feel like I have changed mm-hmm. as a result of having those fights and walking through the coals together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes I'll say, OK, here's a really strong an overly strong opinion. Argue me out of it. To my client. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I take that tactic. Just to frame it, right? And yeah. it makes it like I I give them permission. I say, I'm going to make this argument overly strong part of because I want to make it really, really clear. But I, I really want you to poke holes in it and argue me out of it, okay? And it, like I invite them, give them permission. They don't always do it. But when they do, obviously, we get a better result. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, the best Just feedback. like you're saying. And I think when we talk about what is a designer... This is a design skill to be able to initiate and guide that kind of conversation. And that's very different, again, than being an artist, because whenever I've had that kind of conversation with someone who sees themselves as an artist, it's like I've punched them in the stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Can you relate? Oh, absolutely. One of the things that we had to find out early on was that we had to give clients permission to criticize us exactly yeah like they didn't want to hurt our feelings is something that a client actually said to us uh we don't want to hurt your feelings and and instead they blew like two months of project time and a ton of money yeah which, which is the thing that actually hurt and and uh after that experience we started you know telling clients like hey we don't have any feelings here if something sucks and you don't tell us, we're going to keep doing it. Yeah. So we had to create exactly that sort of framing that you're talking about, which is, is that anything that we propose is open to discussion, but that discussion has to be grounded in the goals that we already agreed on. Like people can't shift goals and they especially can't shift goals from, oh, we're supposed to accomplish something for the business or accomplish something for our customers to, oh, I don't feel happy about this for myself as something I would hang over my sofa. Like that's often where the shift goes. People start arguing about their personal preferences and that's where we have to pull them back from that when it gets personal. And that's where I always turn to figuring out how to do some kind of customer test to get some data. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Like, Like I love to shut those conversations down with data. That's it. Not shut them down. Uh, move them forward with data. Because that's, <laughs> that's, that's really what it is. And yeah. that's where, you know, we're always is like, how do you get data? And then you sometimes get into these arguments. Well, if it's less than a thousand data points, doesn't matter. And blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. From the data analytics, Nazis, <laughs> totally. blah, blah, blah. Perhaps you've met them. Yeah. yeah. And I thought what you said earlier about, you know, 
identifying what is it that the customer is learning and how are we going to measure that, you know, making sure that you're using data in a really intentional way that actually will push forward the design of the experience. I mean, that's just so lacking. And it's really hard to pull people away from those generalized kind of overview numbers that a lot of the platforms give them. And they're really exciting. You're like, holy shit, I got so many engagements. This is great. But it's like, yeah, that's not it's not our goal. Who cares? Yeah. I found that data is a, is, is a good tool for a designer to use, obviously. But I think a designer still needs to assert themselves as the person who was hired to to solve the problem. And if I have the data to to make the case, I'm happy to use the data to make the case. But ultimately, I want people to understand that I have the expertise to do this, which is why they hired me to do it, and that we're not in an opinion-driven or a subjective situation here. I want all of my proposals questioned, and I want them questioned hard because I need all the tires kicked on those. Yeah. And so it's so interesting. So that's absolutely a great way to operate. That's not how I operate. And I've evolved a lot over the years. How I operate now is one, I'm not the hired designer. I'm the design coach and it's a different role, although it can be more or less involved. Mm -hmm. But I never, at this point in my career, I never do design without doing this very structured, upfront, super fan, customer insight research. And isn't that designed too? Sure it is. But what I'm saying is that I actually don't count on, that is where most of the design comes from. It's like I set up a framework and then a lot of the details of how we fill that in comes from that research. And at this point, without like I'll turn down jobs where they don't want to do it. Oh yeah. yeah. No, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah, absolutely. We have never taken on a job that didn't include research yeah. ever. <laughs> yeah. But I like so that's what I mean by answering with, with data. And part of what I've done is created, again, this all comes out of game thinking and it's all laid out in the book, but I've created this very fast way to get a small handful of people that are the right proxy that give you the data you can trust early in the project. That's a long way of saying super fans, Mm -hmm. but it's hard to get that quickly. And Mm -hmm. the kind of clients I work with, which are mostly startups, quickly is incredibly important. So I found that, and not everybody buys into this process, which is fine. That's the filtering process. But if you put a week or two of filtering up front to find this right handful of people, the next several months just go really fast because you've got your proxy and you can tweak it. So when I say data, I'm training my clients to say, these are 10 data points. These are 15 data points. And they're a carefully chosen proxy. And that's part of the secret of speeding everything up, at least in in the game thinking approach. I'm guessing you probably do something very similar. Yeah, because I think we we always, when the issues of speed come up, we always tell people we work with that the speed of making a decision is the limiting factor. Like people always think, oh, it's how fast can you create artifacts? And it's like, no, you know, we can, you know, create artifacts really quickly. But if you create the the artifact for the wrong reasons and don't have that research or insight or data to have the conversation, you could have a really annoying 
disagreement that lasts for months. And that's what's going to slow it down is not being able to commit to the next step to the way forward because you don't have information and because you don't agree on what a credible source of data is. And the decision is what's going to completely stall progress. Totally. Yeah. And that if they want to cut that research time at the beginning, they should just add on weeks, if not months, yeah. of design time later. Yeah, there's a, there's a multiplier to, to not doing that up front. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been a really uh, fantastic discussion. Thanks so much for joining us here on The Voice of Design. Yeah, this was great. Thanks, Amy Jo. It's been a total pleasure. Talk soon. Erica, you have Amy Jo's book, right? Yes. Yes, I do. I'm in Amy Jo's book, too. You are? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And what's it called again? It is called Game Thinking. Game Thinking. And where can somebody buy Game Thinking? Standard places like the shutdown bookstore in your neighborhood? <laughs> Powell's, um, Amazon, that sort of thing? You can buy Game Thinking at gamethinking.io. Gamethinking.io. Mm-hmm. Gamethinking.io. And you can also get it on Amazon, too, but you should still look at the website. That means you can walk into Whole Foods and get it, right? <laughs> yes, the Whole Foods um, game thinking section. There you go. Right next okay. to the almond milk. So we're, uh, we'll are we be back at Voice of Design in another couple weeks. Another couple weeks, yes. And if you have any thoughts or questions, uh, hit us up on Twitter at VOD underscore rocks or write to VOD at muledesign.com if you have any thoughts, questions, suggestions, or uh, people you'd love us to talk to or topics you'd like us to talk about. You have been listening to Voice of Design, America's number one authoritative podcast about the design field. Thank you very much for listening. Please tell your friends. 